Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my very, very real pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon um, to Stefan Ruger's inaugural lecture, and a particular welcome to his family who are able to be with us uh, today. Stefan joined the Open University's Knowledge Media Institute in September 2006 to take up a chair in Knowledge Media. Before joining us, Stefan was a reader in Multimedia and Information Systems at the Department of Computing, Imperial College London, and held a prestigious EPSLC Advanced Research Fellowship there for five years, from 1999 to 2004. He maintains his links with his old department at Imperial as a visiting principal research fellow. He's also held several other substantive visiting posts around the world at the University of Sydney in 2003, at the University of Waikato uh, in 2004, and at INPG Grenoble in 2005. He started his academic career at the Freie Universität Berlin, studying for a diploma in theoretical physics. Physics, it's amazing where these physicists get to be. Uh, they're everywhere, they're everywhere. Um, that's the equivalent of a, an MSc, and he received a PhD in 1996 from the Technische Universität Berlin for his work on artificial intelligence, and in particular for the theory of neural networks. Since then, his work has migrated from theory to applications in multimedia retrieval. He now holds the post of director of the 12th Strong Multimedia Information Systems Team at the OU, a group whose research addresses a range of issues related to retrieving images, music, and speech from databases and from the web. He's also chair of the steering committee of the Multimedia Knowledge Management Network, a network of research teams from seven UK universities which aim to enhance communications between experts in the field of both academia and industry and maintain shared resources for the direct benefit of the research community as a whole. The main goal of his research over the last six years has been to create an easy and intuitive user-friendly content-based multimedia search engine. The area of search is of significant interest in a diverse range of settings, as you can imagine, broadcasting, libraries, telecommunication, consumer electronics, galleries and museums, to name just a few. His team's accomplishments include building a number of research prototypes of music, image and video search engines, which have attracted interest and support from the BBC, from British Telecom, British Library and the Victoria and Albert Museum. And a testament to his standing in the field is evidenced by the fact that he has had over 100 external research publications since 1995 and has attracted a number of substantial research grants from the EPSRC and the EC, among others. He's also received international peer recognition as chair of the European Conference on Information Retrieval in 2006 and through his membership of five research-related steering committees and 31 program committees of international conferences. He's associate editor of two journals, referee for three funding bodies, and reviewer for 22 journals and publishers. Does the man sleep, one asks. <laughs> Reflecting the long-standing focus of his research on multimedia information retrieval and corresponding search engine applications, the title of Stefan's lecture this afternoon is more than a thousand words. Wonderful title. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to give the stage to Stefan Ruger.
Yeah, thank you, Vice Chancellor, for the very kind introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Welcome to my inaugural lecture as Professor of Knowledge Media. I always wondered how it would be to give an inaugural lecture myself, having seen so many colleagues give one. And I found out that preparing an inaugural lecture is easier than other, than other tasks. Just recently, I was asked by my nine-year-old son, Ryan, uh, what I do for a living and uh, whether I could help in his science, engineering, and mathematics day in his school. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's quite simple. I try to find out how best to search in, in media, uh, multimedia films, images, and books, and so on. And he asked me, hmm, do you make the catalog for Argos? Hmm. Not quite, not quite, but that's a good example of the kind of uh, data that we use. Um, and he was a little bit impatient. What has science, engineering, or maths got to do with that? Um, it's just about finding stuff in the shop, right? Grandma can do that, and actually, she does that better than you, <laughs> doesn't she? Well, um, after this, I figured an inaugural would be easy, but going to the science, engineering, math day in his school with hard-nosed nine-year-olds, that'll be terrifying. <laughs> yes, yeah, so my research really is about uh, finding media objects, um, multimedia repositories. And that's a task that's been around for a long, long time. So the first rec written records were just about 5,000 years ago. So if you look at this clay tablet here, uh, that's from uh, Mesopotamia. It's from the Cradle of Civilization. It's one of the earliest written records. And then um, these were business records, but also religious texts that were stored on there. These were kept in big boxes. Um, the boxes were in storerooms, difficult to access. And whenever people wanted to find stuff in these boxes, uh, they had um, tablets that would, that would tell them what's in the box. And they didn't have titles then. What they did then, they were using incipits, which are the first few words of the document. And here is one particular uh, for one particular box. Well, that's, that's the kind of stuff uh, that people noted on their tablets in order to keep record what's there. Now, we, we still today use that technology. Um, we use, uh, use uh, catalogs. We use uh, catalog cards and libraries. And that's about title, authors, and so on. And we, we find stuff by looking for titles and authors and then uh, going to the bookshelf. Um, but, of course, there have been revolutions in um, many revolutions in the whole world of information retrieval and the whole world of, of information management. And one revolution, of course, was brought about by computers, undoubtedly. Computers are, have changed the whole world. Um, here is one of the earliest computers, um, first semi-programmable um, electronic computer, Colossus, was actually built and used four miles down the road in Bletchley Park during World War II. And uh, what you see here is, well, we've got no keyboards, just switches. We've got no monitor, just lights. And um, we've got no memory in the computer. It's, it's a running ticker tape to, to, the, to, the, to the right. Do you see you see the strip here? That contains all the information that's being processed in this computer. So that's the first computer, um, and that sets the scene for a visionary man at this time uh, who thought about how to manage information. 
And this man was Vannevar Bush. He was the director of um, science and um, research and development of the uh, U.S. government. So he led a team of around 6,000 scientists, and they had many projects, one of which was the Manhattan Project to build an atomic bomb. So he was the, the overall director of all this activity. And his, his thoughts about information processing were um, quite revolutionary. So in 1945, um, after the war, when he had time to gather his thoughts and, and write articles, he wrote an, an essay about uh, information processing and about a machine, how to do that. And that was his design here. Memex is called, Memory Extender. Now, the Memex is a machine uh, built into a desk. It contains microfiches, and it's supposed to be operated right-hand side by a keyboard with levers and switches, and the microfiches, they, they go left and right and up and down, and can be projected onto two different screens in the middle. And on the left is a glass plate, and from below, you see a camera that's able to take a picture. And I presume that the bottles in the, in the background contain the chemicals to develop the film straight away. So the revolutionary idea here was that not only could you keep records and find stuff, but also you could um, add annotations to that. So you could write something in longhand, put it on a glass and photograph it, and you could, and that was another revolutionary idea, you could link two or three objects together in this database. And that was the first form of what we now um, know as links on the web. And this is the reason why Vannevar Bush is now the, hailed as the grandfather of the Internet uh, and of the digital library. But he never lived to see any of these. So he's uh, quite a visionary man. But these principles of linking to stuff and, um, and operating on it is still very much alive uh, today. Now, computers can do lots and lots of uh, things. They, they have brute uh, computing power, lots of memory, um, cheap disk space, collapsing costs in disk space. So, what used to be a difficult task to index something uh, is now, has now become an easier task. What you see here is a, an index of a travel guide. Uh, and that's how we know indexes. Uh, there are words, and they're linked to pages. And the, um, when, whenever you want to know about something, you look it up in the index and then go to the page. And web search engines do exactly the same thing. Web search engines, they uh, use every word of every document they can get hold of and put a link back to the document. So the only difference from a web search engine to this general index here uh, is that in a web search engine, every word is captured, and rather than a page number, it will link to the document. So far, so good. This seems like an easy technology, but I, I don't want to hide the fact that there is a, still a great deal um, of research questions with that structure. So how best to rank documents, uh, how best to take the user into account, how best to use document structure. It's all uh, interesting questions on information retrieval, really. 
Now, but I don't want to talk about text retrieval and about web retrieval anymore. I just want to uh, say that this is uh, something we can use. Now, what is multimedia retrieval? What does that mean? Well, multimedia search means that we are also able, rather than to search by, uh, by text, we are also able to search by, by other means, for example, by, by pictures or by humming a tune and the computer singing the music piece for us. Now, just imagine you stroll around in pleasant, lovely Milton Keynes, and you happen across a building like that. Uh, would it not be great if you could pull out your mobile phone, your camera on the, the mobile phone, uh, snap the scene, and send it to a service? Um, and the service then tells you what this is. You know, this, this would be a, a visual search. You input a picture, and you return something, um, that you didn't know before. And you didn't have to know anything, any text or anything, in order to operate that. Now, what can you do um, with this kind of technology? And there are obvious applications in uh, tourism, but there also are applications in advertising. Advertising is something that underpins the whole of the search industry, um, and a colleague of mine, Professor Mamata at uh, the University of um, Massachusetts in Amherst, he co-founded a company called Snaptel, and this company specializes in mobile search. So what they came up with is the idea of customers being able to take pictures with their mobile phones of print advertising, of billboards. They send this picture in to the service, and the service gives them something extra, a promotion, a clip or something. So here is how uh, his company works. You take a photograph of the billboard, say it's about a movie. Um, then you send this to the provider, and the provider uh, will give away free clips to the movie and will tell you about where the movie plays, how you can book uh, tickets, and so on. So this is an advertisement application uh, to this um, media search, to, to this visual search. And there is also obvious medical uh, examples. So if, if I go to a doctor and I cough a little bit and um, feel a little bit shortness of breath, they might want to take an x-ray or, or other medical images and they might ask themselves, well, where have I seen this shadow on the lungs before? Um, how, how do I get, uh, how do I know more about that? And they potentially, perhaps, could search in a medical database and find medically similar pictures that already are diagnosed. And they could find, hopefully in my case, that uh, it'll all be bronchitis and uh, no need to worry. So this, this would be one application in the medical field, which is uh, very promising. But, of course, it's, um, it's not trivial. It's, uh, it's, it's a hugely uh, difficult thing to do this uh, visual search. One difficulty comes about by pictures being um, just lots and lots of pixels. This picture here will have one million pixels, maybe even more, maybe five million pixels. And each pixel will have associated a number to it, the intensity, how bright it is. Or if it's colored, it will be three numbers, red, green, and blue. Now, 
we need to reduce these numbers somehow. We can't really deal with the sea of numbers, and histograms are one simple example. In general, what one would try to do is one would try to reduce those numbers to some uh, significant and some interesting property, which we call feature. Uh, histogram is, is the simplest way of reducing um, a load, big, big sea of numbers to a few numbers. And here we've reduced the whole image to eight numbers, telling us how bright uh, the image is. And we see, well, uh, in, in the bin that's for the bright pixels, the number eight, uh, that's the most, the most pixels in there. So that's what we can deduce from this very, very simple feature. The color histograms exist as well, color being a three-dimensional object. And because color is a three-dimensional object, we tend to visualize those color features in three dimensions. Uh, and here, from the previous picture of the Peace Pagoda in Willen and Milton Keynes, we see the distribution of color uh, in visualized here in, in this way. It's just a few numbers that we see, but they tell us a little bit about uh, this image. Now, it is the features that are the most important thing when we deal with images and when we analyze them. And here is how we can use that for search. So imagine you have a database of images, many more than the four on the right-hand side. This is uh, just to visualize. But each of the images in the database, we would map into some abstract feature space with more or less complex features. And these are the axes that you can see here in the, in the feature space. Each of those images will have a position in there, but also an image that I use as a query, you know, the photograph of the Peace Pagoda or here, the, the, ice, uh, the iceberg. Now, the iceberg, the query, will be mapped into the feature space as well. And this position will determine which other images are considered uh, similar. So you can rank and, and find interesting similar stuff. So that's the basic principle. It's features and distances which are most important uh, for visual search. And in, in our lab, uh, we've looked at some features, um, for example, at texture features, which are interesting properties of images. And psychologists have found out that uh, it's coarseness, contrast, and directionality, which are the most important uh, properties of, of texture. And work with uh, one of my PhD students then, Peter Harth, uh, has found uh, interesting ways of constructing texture features specifically for image retrieval. And here's an example where, um, where we have um, top left images, the original image, and then for each point, we look at the area in the points uh, at some uh, some, some region around this point and determine how coarse, uh, the, how, how coarse the pattern is, how contrasty it is, and how directional it is. We put this uh, into a false color image and then uh, compute statistics of that. So we reduce again the texture properties of an image into a few numbers that are visualized top right in this uh, histogram. Now, at this point, um, having um, talked a little bit about features and distances, uh, I would like to show how uh, movies can be, how, how films can be processed. And before doing that, I'll show a movie.
So here is a, a movie that was, was shot, was directed and shot by uh, one of the PhD students in KMI, a science fiction uh, trailer, which is actually very, very nice. You find the mouse it is, yeah? In the far future, politics, politics and science. Our universe is one amongst many. We can explore, we can explore them, correct our mistakes, their mistakes. We are the instruments. We have been modified. I walked to find her. We were trained together. Realities coexist in parallel. We became friends. Lovers. Until it happened. I need to show you something. There's something out there. Shadow. I wasn't enough. She would not forget. Was it an accident? Something was still here. Something that was him. Him wanting revenge. Him after the shadow. Following your trail, I walked through realities. Already worlds are no longer like yours. Looking for her. Where will I stop? Fantastic movie, don't you think? So if, if images are complicated and complex, uh, movies certainly are more so. One of the first tasks when we get hundreds of hours of movies to index is to, to, to automatically determine what are the parts of the movie, uh, what are the so-called shots that the movie is edited of. And we used features that we've seen before uh, to, to find out where the boundaries between the shots are. So what we do is we, we do some processing, and for example, the, the false color texture in, uh, feature on the right-hand side uh, or the immediate color histograms on the left-hand side, on the, on the bottom, tell us a little bit about uh, what happens in the movie. And when there is big changes, as indicated by the graph here, then programs automatically can pick up on that and can hypothesize, well, there is something happening, a scene change, a cut, uh, or uh, a shot change. And in here in the, in the top you see what the programs made of all the different measures of differences between consecutive frames and frame 16 uh, frames apart and so on, uh, and how, how the program classified these events signified by the sparks. And, and with, with this little bit of technology, we immediately get in, in the next... Oh, I didn't mean to run this again. Um, we immediately get in the next step uh, a summary, a visual summary of what happens in the movie. So each of those shots will have a representative keyframe. And that's what you can display here. And that that's, uh, technology also can be used for um, news search engines, for example. Every day we record the 10 o'clock BBC News, and every day we try to find out what are the constituent visual parts in the news, what are the shots in there. Um, we record the teletext that comes with the news, and we index the teletext, and we glue back together the shots that we believe, or that the algorithm, I should say, <laughs> believes uh, belongs to a story. Uh, with a little bit of text summarization and a few other technologies thrown in, uh, we get a, a search engine that kind of roughly looks like that. 
The first version of that search engine was built in the year 2000 uh, by one of my students who got a national prize for that. And actually Google and uh, Blinks TV and so on only later developed uh, search engines like these. But the, the, the trick here is that we are able to search on the text, on the teletext. Uh, and we are able to retrieve stories. Now, if I search in this particular, uh, if I search for, for Microsoft, for example, I will find stories, hopefully, about, let's see what happens, uh, yes, uh, about Microsoft. So, uh, apparently, 4th of May, Microsoft was in the news of failing to buy uh, Yahoo. And again, we see this visual summary. We have, the, uh, let me scroll down a little bit. We have the, um, the text summary. Uh, we've got, we pulled out the organizers, people, and so on. A lot of added value to the, to this new search engine. And immediately we see whether, whether or not, uh, this is a relevant story. Ryan might be interested in the next clip, which is about a video game that Microsoft brought out, uh, that's, uh, seen in the visual of the, of the next clip in the, in the, in the bottom. So, um, so far we have seen a um, little bit of text retrieval where the movie actually, the, the TV news was piggybacked. So it was really text retrieval what happened here. And the, the music retrieval that, that we did in our group operated on the same principle. Uh, we transformed the music into text, into text pieces, and then did a text search on them. Now let's see how this can be done uh, quite quickly. So if you've got music, here is uh, the score. Um, one can try and find the different in, difference in half notes uh, between two, two adjacent notes here. Um, and you see here the first two notes, uh, there is a difference of zero. Then it goes up by seven half steps, uh, then stays the same, and it goes up by two half steps, and so on. So these differences in, in pitch, we then convert into letters. You know, zero is Z, and uh, going up one half step is capital A, going down one half step is lowercase a. The strings of letters, we move a window over it, we create artificial words. These are uh, gobbledygook, of course. But if we process the music in the database the same way as the music uh, that we search for, that we hum, for example, then we can try and match these letters and, and, and do some search here. And uh, Shyamala Dorazami, who, who did this research with me, she's now a senior lecturer in Malaysia. Uh, she has built a, a search system for that, which she sent me a video for, um, based on, on the joint work here. A sample humming query to search bug field number one in C is query and search. So this is being recorded, and then there's a uh, demo that explicitly shows what happens uh, in, in the system. This is now, with the help of a pitch tracker, transformed into um, MIDI notation that contains the, the pitch uh, numbers. And this MIDI notation is then transformed into a text representation. This is done here explicitly for the benefit of the viewer. So we've got here the MIDI file, and then the next step is uh, to 
look at the processed text file, and here is the gobbledygook uh, words that's in the humming, and these are then copied into sort of a text search engine to explicitly show its text search that we do, and we return a music piece and then play it. So that's the kind of process that allows us to hum a tune and then retrieve uh, the music piece and uh, demo by, by her. So that's all been uh, more or less piggybacked on text. And it's a fantastic trick to reduce things to text because text search engines work so very well. Quick, fast, reliable, scalable, big, um, great stuff. Now, the, the, the other bit that I found interesting during my studies is uh, geography. For, for some reason, geography is very, very important to us as, as individuals. Um, and I'll show, I'll show a cartoon why. But because we failed to, to buy the broadcasting rights uh, for this cartoon, so the AV, AV team and webcasting, please look away now. <laughs> so this is my, my all-time favorite cover of a magazine, The New Yorker, in uh, 1976. It's the, world, it's the view of the world from the Ninth Avenue. I'll enlarge that for you, and I'll describe it for the benefit of the, um, of the web audience. So this is created by Saul Steinberg, and you see the details of the 9th Avenue and 10th Avenue from an aerial view. Um, then you see the Hudson River in the middle of the image, followed by the rest of the United States, uh, starting with Jersey, which is just a tiny uh, patch. The rest of the United States is roughly as big as the area between the 9th Avenue and the 10th Avenue. Behind that, there is the Pacific o Ocean, uh, roughly as big as the Hudson River, and behind there in the back, can you see? It's uh, probably not. Let's enlarge. It's, oh, yes, it's China and Japan, and it would be Russia over here, right? So that's barely visible. That's the, that's the view of the world from uh, the Ninth Avenue. Now, uh, it's, it's a really interesting uh, bit that, that people should think about the world in this, in this way. And... Um, so I got interested, in, and a student of mine, Simon Orwell, got interested in looking at geography. So what we did is, in order to find out more about geography and how it is used in text, we looked at the Wikipedia collection. Now, Wikipedia, as you will know, is, uh, is an online collaborative encyclopedia where everyone can contribute articles about anything, really. Uh, when authors mention locations they usually link to an article about that location. So when someone talks about London, they would put in a link to the London they mean. And this structure allows us to know exactly which London people meant when they wrote the article. And we, we um, identified some technology uh, that allows us to find out which articles in Wikipedia are actually articles about locations. And we can ground the locations to longitude latitude. Now this, when, when looking at this uh, Wikipedia corpus, it gives us a fascinating insight in the use of locations in text. That's what we can find here. And because our technologies are language independent, we can do this with about any language you like. 
Now, just because we had the data, we thought, well, why, why not visualize that? And it's fascinating stuff. This is how, in the English language, locations are used. This is a heat map of the locations that are used. Uh, so the, the, the brighter, the, the more red, uh, the more visible, the more these locations has been talked about. And apparently, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, United States and, and Europe is uh, talked about a lot. The rest of the world seems a little bit dark, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and for some reason, Italy. Well, it's a great country to do holidays, I suppose. <laughs> it's a great country anyway, I should say. <laughs> now, you do the same with the German uh, Wikipedia. Oh, what a surprise. With the French Wikipedia, with the Spanish one, and I should add, it's not about countries, it's really about languages. So the Spanish Wikipedia also has uh, brightened up a little bit the uh, west coast of South America and, and Middle America. And in contrast to that, the Portuguese Wikipedia. Yeah? The, the lights in South America shift to the right, shift to, to the east. Uh, Chinese is remarkably uniform. Um, so... We're uh, wondering why, and, and maybe actually this might be some serious, because uh, Wikipedia was blocked for some time in, in China, for more than a year, and there's a lot and lot of expatriates all over the world. Uh, so, and still today, access to Wikipedia in China is a little bit patchy. So this is why perhaps uh, China, the Chinese Wikipedia is the most just about the world, as the sort of the best map of the world. And you can do the same exercise with events. So what we did is we extracted, we got interested in that, we extracted events. We extracted events from one of our common area until the year 2000 of our common area. And I'll show you a small film of how the mentioning of events, the mentioning of, uh, of locations during time in two different Wikipedia compare. It will be the English Wikipedia and the Spanish Wikipedia. On top, the English, and on bottom, the Spanish and watch out for the year 1500 uh, when America is being discovered. Uh, what, what happens then to, to the American continent? So there's more references to locations in the English Wikipedia. This is why it's generally a little bit brighter, at least in our. So now America should switch on at some point. There it is. Okay. And... In the English Wikipedia, it's all about the U.S. In the Spanish Wikipedia, it's all about South America, Middle America. So it's, it's as if there are two different worlds. It is amazing that a medium like uh, Wikipedia is so partial. And my, my personal interpretation of that, my hypothesis, which we still have to check, is that we all behave a little bit like Saul Steinberg uh, suggests in, in, his, uh, in his cartoon. We all are little Steinbergs. You know? We all have this very local view of the world. And when we uh, act, think, or, or write about stuff, uh, we do this in our own local environment. And this is why these maps are so partial. And to continue the fun, what we've done is uh, we've created cartograms, a view of the world with deformed countries according to references to them, uh, according to Wikipedia. So this is the view of the world according to the English Wikipedia. Here, German, French. Who would have thought that? Now, my favorite are Spanish and, and uh, Portuguese again. Spanish, look at the Iberian 
side of things, and then Portuguese. Look at what happens there. <laughs> so you can see how, how the form of South America changes. You can see how uh, Southwest Europe completely changes depending on which language you look into. So I'm, I'm convinced we're all little Steinbergs in, in all walks of life, whether it's about judging research, whether it's about other things. We all look very closely at our own work and um, other stuff, perhaps. We don't value it as much. So, and again, Chinese. Okay, so, um, yes. Geography is important, and we, we uh, try and keep uh, working on, on that to rope this into retrieval systems. Now, here is something I, I wanted to talk about, um, the other difficulties of uh, working with images. This is an image that some of you will have seen before. And when you ask a computer what it is, it's, it's that, you know, it's, it's pixels. You know, it's, it's, that's the best a computer can make of, out of such an image. You know? It'll know where to, where to paint a pixel bright uh, or dark, nothing more. If you're good at computer vision, uh, you can reliably extract faces in their position. But, of course, this picture is not really about that. This picture shows the captain of a national team receiving a trophy from Her Royal Highness for winning a world tournament in just about the most important sports in the country. This is really, really, really about victory and triumph. That's what this image is about. Except if you follow the West German team, uh, which is about disaster, defeat, and, and agony. But, but you, you see, that's the, that's the difference between the low-level view and the high-level view. And that's the difficulty that we deal with in, in our research. It's, it's about getting, uh, bridging this semantic gap. Now, one idea is to let computers automatically associate image features with certain words. Um, and one technology to do that is with machine learning. So what, what one would do is you would gather thousands and thousands of examples of images that can be described as sunset, or that can be described as city, or that can be described as something else, some word. And then you try to deploy machine learning technology in order to build models so that you, when you see an image, uh, just the pixels, you can guess what's, what is in this image. And I'll give you a few examples of these training sets. So that's a training set, a random sample of a training set for sunset. So these, so basically what we try to do is we try to ask algorithms to extract the very essence of the commonality of these images so that we can, when we have another image, apply that and say this is a sunset image. Here is cities. Okay, so that's, that's the kind of difficulty we're up against. Um, and the algorithms that we deployed in our lab and that we found in our lab are actually not, not bad. Uh, they, they compare quite favorably to the international uh, competition. So here is one example. Um, so the image here um, hasn't been used in the training data, and one of the algorithms that was implemented in our lab by Alexei Yavlinsky um, managed to correctly uh, foresee water-building city-sunset aerial. Uh, we've put a lot of effort into this particular problem in our lab. Um, a few PhD students who have been working on that, uh, and currently in a European project, we work on, on this uh, problem as well. 
And uh, one of the best algorithms actually comes from our lab. It's a different algorithm to this one. Um, and uh, Alexei Yavlinsky, who is since uh, finishing his PhD, left the group and um, sort of he built a search engine uh, built on these, on these models. So what the search engine would do is the search engine would uh, go through a repository, say Flickr, and automatically tag these images with, with labels. And here is this search engine in action. Uh, this is the result of a good example. The example here is door. So the door detector in this technology works very well. You can see uh, pleasing examples. A few are not doors, but well, it's all automated. Uh, we, we are forgiving here. Here is a bad example uh, where a word like wave couldn't quite be um, annotated correctly with these images. So a lot of these images wouldn't be waves, but some are. So still, okay. But as a scientist, what we're interested most in are the utter disasters and failures, because that's where you can learn from. And here is an ugly example, an iceberg. None of the images here is an iceberg, but this is very helpful for us, because we can then think about what goes wrong and how can we improve this. So one of our ideas here is to sort of try and uh, deploy world knowledge um, in, in that situation so that we know stairs don't really co-occur with icebergs and that we can eliminate uh, this straight away. So b building words from, uh, from, from data, from images, is uh, one way to bridge the mantic gap, and I predict that in order to bridge it, to stretch it as far as to victory and abstract terms, uh, we would need to employ a world knowledge and perhaps in forms of ontologies or um, other external knowledge about the world in order to be able to see this automatically in images. Now, this has uh, all been about search, about images, reducing them to text, about videos, reducing them to images, about music, music and uh, reducing that to text. Um, but in, in all of these examples, people needed to have something in mind. They needed to have uh, an image at hand, or they needed to have type something uh, so, that they, so that they could find things in the search engines. One thing we haven't looked at, and I will briefly look at, is uh, browsing. Browsing is another very important element in our human nature. Uh, often we don't really know what we look for. And in, to do browsing well, we could think of connecting the objects in the database with a network, and then use this network to, to follow and to browse through. So you all will have heard about the six degrees of separation, you know, uh, and it follows from an experiment done in the 60s by Stanley Milgram, uh, who asked randomly chosen people somewhere in Nebraska and, and Kansas uh, to forward a message to a particular stockbroker in Boston, who they don't know. Uh, they're only allowed to use their social network. They're only allowed to ask their friends and acquaintances to pass on this message. And Milgram followed these paths. And of all paths that ended in a the, in the stockbroker, he found that, in average, there was 5.5 links. Well, that's fascinating. Yes? We all know this. This is now common, common knowledge. And it's actually good news for those of you who want to uh, be introduced to Heidi Klum or to George Clooney, as the case may be. Uh, it's very easy to do. You, know? you engage your social network. You ask those of your friends who you think are a little bit closer to fashion or to Hollywood, whether they can pass on a, net, uh, a message uh, to their friends 
who think are a little bit closer to Heidi Klum or to George Clooney and so on. And in no time, you'll have tea and coffee with them. This is how the six degrees of uh, separation work. We wanted to employ the same principle on the multimedia database. And in order to employ that principle, we wanted to have a smaller degrees of separation, maybe three degrees of separation, and to construct networks between objects in a, in a, in a database. And, and this is what uh, one of my PhD students uh, came up with. It's an idea of connecting similar objects with respect to different uh, similarities. So if you want to connect this particular picture in the left, uh, the, uh, what's called the focus image, to other images in the database, we could find out what's the closest one structurally, what's the closest one with respect to color, what's the closest one with respect to text annotation, what's the closest one with respect to uh, coarseness, directionality, and so on. So lots and lots of features we can uh, deploy here. And there'll be a few images that we would connect to that. So we would create a network within the database that is based on similarity. And measuring this, this network, it's a small network, and it's three degrees of separation. Fantastic. So how can we use that? So uh, I'll show an example here. If you want to find video shots from behind the pitcher in a baseball game as he throws a ball that the batter swings at, this might be the images that you have in your mind. You may or may not have these images, but these, these may be in your mind. And what you could do is, uh, with this search engine that's been... Um, coded and uh, implemented by a student of mine who won a national prize for the best use of IT. We, 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 you could start with a random uh, selection of images and then think about which one is one that resembles most uh, a football pitch or a baseball pitch. And you may decide to go for this particular one because it's kind of greenish. Um, so you, you, you click on that one and you have immediately coming up the neighbors uh, connected in the network of this, actually, what is a falcon. And by looking at what's maybe even closer to a, to a pitch, you, you may find this particular image. You click on it, and it will show its neighbors again. So you moved a few steps in this network. And luckily here, we actually see something that remarkably looks like what we wanted, and indeed it is. So with a bit of imagination and a bit of uh, automated processing similarities and features, we were able to, with three or four clicks, find stuff, uh, even though we didn't know how it's called, even though we didn't know uh, how it's, uh, we didn't have an image at hand, how it looked like. So that's a uh, fascinating uh, idea, fascinating technology. And since then, uh, Daniel has actually, after his PhD, set up a company that tries to do that, and here's a web page uh, of his company called Pixstar. He's co-founded it and uh, is there as the chief technology officer. And he here you see uh, browsing in retail catalogs. So, Ryan, to answer your question about the Argus catalog, no, I don't do Argus catalogs, but one of my previous students, uh, Daniel, he has set up a company uh, who and, and, uh, hopefully earns lots of money with uh, providing this type of visual um, search environment to retail. Now, uh, this brings me to nearly to, to the end of the, of the talk. Uh, just a little bit of reflection about the, the work and about the joys of, of working in academia. It is a tremendous joy to work in academia. 
Uh, one of the benefits is uh, you get to travel. I, I like to travel. And it's not only the physical travel to meet colleagues, to discuss, and so on. Um, and I've worked in Berlin, London, Tokyo, Sydney, Hong Kong, Hamilton, Grenoble, Milton Keynes, and so on. It's, it's, but it's, it's, it's really more about the mental travel in the world of concepts, the mental travel in the world of paradigms and knowledge. This is what I really, really uh, like and appreciate. And I've also traveled from the world of theoretical physics to the world of applications in multimedia retrieval. And then later, later I traveled from one of the most exclusive universities, uh, Imperial College uh, London, uh, to one of the most inclusive universities, the Open University, whose motto is uh, to be open to people, to be open to methods, to be open to places, and to be open to ideas. And that's a motto that I very much can, can uh, sympathize with. It's, 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 a, it's a great motto. It's, it's great to sort of be able to further education and knowledge uh, in, in the world. That's a great, great mission. And as an aside, uh, when my, seven, my then seven-year-old son, Ryan, uh, found out that I was moving from Imperial College London to, to the Open University, he was delighted. He was overjoyed. So much so that I got suspicious. So why, why are you so, so happy? And he explained to me that being a Star Wars fan, he never quite could understand that it would work for the Empire. <laughs> and presumably he must have thought that I was teaching stormtroopers to squash Jedi Knights. So that, that was, you know, uh, I found this quite, quite sweet, quite, quite nice. Well, during my many travels in life, I've uh, met and worked with a large number of people without whom I could have never undertaken all these journeys because they inspired me, uh, because they collaborated with me, uh, because they supported me, or because they kept my crazy ideas in check. So it's, it's impossible to really list them all, and it's impossible to adequately recognize and value their input. It's um, just too big a task to do. And there are, of course, my immediate family, my mother and my late father, uh, Irene and Josef, who have given me the most fantastic childhood ever, and I'm really, really grateful for that. And there is my wife, and there's my son, great joy in my life, fantastic. And there is, of course, my, all my professional life, you know, uh, the, the teachers I had, the supervisors I had, the people I worked with, uh, collaborators, co-students, my own staff, my own students. I'm immensely grateful for, to every one of them. And that's all. I, I thank all of them. Thank you. So I'm Peter Scott. I'm the director of the Knowledge Media Institute. And it's my job to offer Stefan a vote of thanks. And I've promised him that I'll try and speak for only as long as he has credits. <laughs> but that means you could be a very long time. Because clearly uh, the best way to judge someone is through their social networks. And Stefan's influenced an awful lot of people. And I'm confident that I'll still be speaking while you get to see some of the names of some of those people and their connections with him. It's irresistible, though, to follow up on the... Uh, Star Wars analogy and say that we're very glad that the force is now with us. <laughs> um, and 
you know, the news from Imperial this morning that uh, Darth Vader is finding new ways to motivate A-level students <laughs> is actually just an irresistible joke. But I think I'm going to have to stop the analogy quickly because I'm not at all sure how our own vice-chancellor would like to be considered to be uh, Princess Leia. <laughs> uh, and I'm really going to have trouble thinking of who the Wookiee is. But... As you see, we're only on episode two. This could be some while. And uh, I, I, I've, um, I've got a lot to say to say that Stefan's probably um, one of the most um, serious and professional members of a lab who've spent a lot of time being cowboys and having fun. And Stefan's brought a new range of fun to us and a very exciting range of topics. Um, he gave up London to come to Milton Keynes and build a new group here. And we're all very glad he did so. And he's done so, so in a, a remarkably short period of time. He's continued his research outputs at the highest level with very high-profile conferences and journals, prize-winning work, which you've seen, and I don't need to list again. Um, his academic leadership is very impressive. His team is impressive. And the credits are still rolling. Because uh, all of these important people are still, still passing by and all the people that um, we could draw a very great visualization of the interconnections of. He's also come to us with a very aggressive dissemination strategy and reaching out into the world in a very powerful way, putting KMI and the Open University on the map by organizing significant events here, which we're very pleased by, and going out to key conferences and connecting us into the world in a better way. For example, um, one, of the, one of the most um, unusual things he did was the political signing of a memorandum of understanding between the University of London and Maltese Research Institute over a UK conference um, connecting us with the British, Royal Institute of British Architects. All sorts of unusual and um, very exciting new opportunities being brought into the lab. One of the things I would say, just to think of the most recent reasons that we need, Stefan, is that yesterday we launched uh, into iTunes University. And as you all know, iTunes has 50 million customers, and it sells something like 4 billion songs a year. That's a lot of humming. <laughs> because buried inside all of that is media which is now some of ours. And as of last night, because, of course, the way Apple indexes these things on the mere text, everything we had was not findable because the text has to be right and the text has to be properly indexed and the text has to be something that means something to you. So we really need Stefan to quickly solve the problem of helping the world to find our materials, which are so very different, buried in uh, masses and masses of the, of the rest of the world's lectures. Um, the other thing I'd say, we've run out of credit, so I promise I'll, 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 I'll finish. The other thing I'd say is that we're, we're very excited by Stefan's enthusiasm to bring enterprise into the lab. It's something I've set as a key theme for us in this next generation of our work, is to be more effective in enterprise. Stefan has uh, taken that challenge directly to heart, and when he bombards us with challenges that are enterprising, I'm very pleased to say my colleagues are rising to those challenges. He's a London Technology Network fellow, and he's working very hard at connecting us in to uh, licenses and enterprising uh, new work. He, in fact, also has two patents uh, in his CV, 
and uh, is keen to look at how you exploit work more effectively. To finish up, I'd probably say that Stefan's worked hard at building his team here, but he's got um, some tough challenges ahead of him. KMI is a very multinational lab. If you look across our community, a very small bunch of us are, are um, uh, British, uh, British English. But the largest community, I think, the largest number I can count in the lab, correct me if I'm wrong, somebody, is Italians. I can count maybe nine, ten Italians, and many of them are in this room. I can only count a couple of Germans. And the thing that's worrying me is that the last time we had a very serious competition that involved football, and Stefan, yes, the ball was over the line, no matter what the image recognition says. Um, last time we had this competition, the Italians definitely won it. So Stefan has got a problem here. Germany and Italy are in different groups in Euro 2008. And, of course, I understand the British do play football, but obviously not very well. This is something that he's going to have to work very hard on and getting a serious community to make sure that uh, that final, which I'm sure we're all going to see between the two strong teams in, in KMI, uh, is its best. I'll take this opportunity to finish and offer Stefan my vote of thanks from Knowledge Media Institute and the Open University. I'll offer you all the opportunity to join us all outside for drinks and nibbles and to once more express your thanks to Professor Stefan Ruger.